Ah, good. Okay. But anyway, uh, it goes to the YouTube thing, so it's already recorded there. But I'll just also record it here. Yeah. I see. Okay. <clears throat> so um, the um, ordinarily we pass through periods of history without uh, noticing very much about uh, the shifts that are taking place or accommodating gradually to it. But it's a little bit different when you are uh, an active participant in the creation of that history, uh, because then all of a sudden the very things that defined your life all of a sudden have shifted. The great advantage of this experience is that it gives you a deeper understanding of what is beneath those um, ephemeral kind of, um, you could even say faddish uh, parts of your life. Um, the parts that were connected rather superficially uh, to what was taking place. And instead, what reveals itself is a kind of undercurrent. Um, Schopenhauer said this a little bit more interestingly. He said that you don't make sense of a life looking forward. You only make sense of it by looking back and seeing it as a spiral um, and trying to find the center of that spiral uh, the point around which everything turns. Um, and so it's a very useful experience um, to go through a kind of um, period in which everything that you assumed was true all of a sudden uh, uh, it becomes evanescent. Um, uh, it just kind of um, uh, uh, becomes insecure um, um, changing uh, in very dramatic ways. And so um, I had committed um, my life, really, uh, and I mean that really directly, because in order to work in the South in the civil rights movement, uh, you had to be, uh, unless you were foolish, you had to be aware of the fact that you were placing your life at risk. And uh, I was very conscious of the fact that that was what I was doing um, and believed in it strongly enough to be able to do this. Um, there is, however, a wonderful passage from Dostoevsky uh, from the Brothers Karamazov, where he describes a man as being um, uh, sort of uh, typical of this of his last generation. That is someone who was prepared to give everything uh, for what he believed in. Uh, even to give his life for what he believed in. But if you had asked him to spend three or four years in hard study um, in order to multiply 10 or 20 fold um, his possi the possibilities of achieving the things that he believed in, such a, such a sacrifice was completely beyond him. Tell me again, one thing that when you read, do talk about the fact that looking back onto your life and obviously whatever you did go through at that time, definitely you were not looking at what was happening. But in your case, did you see the future and see after 20 years, this is what I am working towards, something like that? Was there some image picture in your mind? Uh, it was actually more subtle than that. Yes, there was. Uh, there were elements of that image because... Um, uh, anyone who was involved in the civil rights movement had the kind of dream that Martin Luther King spoke about. Uh, and that was why that speech resonated so powerfully because we all had that dream. 
Um, and um, uh, more um, subtly, um, this is a little difficult to describe because you, um, I don't know if any of you have had the actual experience of it. And if you haven't had the experience of it, it's very difficult to describe. Uh, but if you can imagine being kind of at the very front edge of history as it is unfolding um, and the kind of sensitivity to that unfolding um, that happens inside of you where you uh, think of something and then you go out and do it and it becomes history. Um, that's pretty powerful. And we can have a sense of that um, in, in various small ways, but when you're riding a kind of crest, uh, a wave, really surfing that wave, um, there's an excitement about possibility, about that vision, uh, which is no longer something that is just abstract and distant and removed from your life. Um, instead, it is very, very real. Um, and asks you to um, live up to that vision that you have, not just in the long run, but moment by moment, to bring it into existence. And the possibility of bringing it into existence is actually exhilarating. No, well, I tell you why. We, we ended that last one, that last uh, session of ours. We ended it at that question that Kimberly asked you: that did you ever imagine? I mean, did you, you did you see any changes, or did you, what did you look at? And you said, in a million years, I could not have thought that we'll have a black president and all that thing. Oh uh, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I'm just coming from there. That what was it that you people were looking at? And then obviously today you look back and you say, okay, all this happened. But at that point of time, what was the best case scenario that you were looking at? Um, well, there's a difference between a kind of utopian version of this, which is the dream that we're talking about. Um, you may know that the word utopia is a pun uh, invented by Sir Thomas More, um, which means no place, good place. Um, so it's a good place, but it's really no place. Um, and so there was that utopian kind of, I don't know, yeah, even wishfulness uh, about the kind of life that uh, those of us who were involved in all this work wanted to live. I, th I would say that it was very, um, um, how would I say, hopeful. Um, you could say idealistic, uh, but I don't think that that really captures it. Um, uh, it was uh, looking at really uh, th the experience of connection across boundaries and the uh, excitement of learning from each other in very deep and fundamental ways. So here I was, uh, a white kid from Berkeley who went into the South and worked in the, in the um, lived in the black community uh, and was a part of that community. And to be able to have had the experience of crossing those boundaries and connecting with people, that was an image of the future um, that I could easily imagine happening. That was kind of what I imagined. And, and the connections between us uh, in the free speech movement at Berkeley that I was also very active and very much a part of, um, 
what is missing in the history records um, of those moments um, uh, is the ecstasy yeah. uh, of liberation, um, the connection that we had with one another um, that all of a sudden just completely wiped away um, all of the ways that we distance ourselves from one another. But this iconic thing was there uh, with that photograph. Yeah, that's me on the far right with the armband on my yeah. next to Mario Savio, who is the he's the, the leader of the free speech movement. This one? Um, yeah, that's Mario, who is quite brilliant. And these people. Um, my, the Michael Rossman, uh, they very, very close friends. Um, that was us. So uh, in that moment, when you have lived uh, with a set of uh, kind of um, uh, limitations, um, uh, restrictions created by the world around you, and all of a sudden you um, uh, have the courage to kind of pass through those, there is a moment of exhilaration. Um, and that moment happened repeatedly um, as we stood for what we believed in um, and really uh, tried to bring about not just something in the outer world, but something between us, um, a quality of connection, um, a joy um, in no longer being separated by um, uh, a, a kind of what we thought was possible. So let me describe this in a slightly different way. Um, um, let me think, I, I'm trying to think of, a, of an analogy. Uh, the closest one that I can come to, and it's on a kind of longer frame, um, is looking at what has happened in the field of conflict resolution over the period of, for me, the last 41 years. Um, and for many of you, I think for a, a considerable period of time, the experience in mediation, I'll just ask this question, uh, raise your hand if you have, uh, your, if you yourself have been a mediator um, in any number of cases, if you are a mediator yourself. Okay, so raise your hand again if in the course of your mediations you have experienced something magical. Okay, um, that's what it's like. Uh, it's experiencing that magic, which comes from nowhere that you could have, you know, kind of recognized beforehand. Um, uh, in fact, there's a wonderful kind of description from science fiction by uh, William Gibson, uh, who says that, or I think it was Gibson, maybe it was, it might have been Ray Bradbury, I don't remember, some science fiction writer who says that um, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic. Um, and I think this is true of the human technology, uh, but what happens in those moments of magic is that human connection, um, that touching uh, from one to the other. Um, it's a spiritual experience is the only way that it can be described. Spiritual in the sense of energetic. Um, 
uh, in the sense of profound and poignant and meaningful. But it, it, again, it but because that is the reason that I started that other show. It's called Mediators, Mediation and Spirituality. This is exactly what we're trying to discuss. That there is something to it. There's definitely something to that, which you should yeah. be. You should come in sometime on that, and give us your words of wisdom on that also. Very good. Okay, so uh, let's uh, take a look for a second at what is uh, spirit, um, and I think we have to distinguish spirituality from religion. Uh, all religions are interested in spirituality, but spirituality has no religion. Uh, or rather it has all religions and all things that are non-religious as well. Um, it is, in my view, um, the, and I say this as a, someone who, is, who meditates every day for a minimum of an hour a day uh, and has for the last several decades, um, it is the moment by moment experience of the flow of life energy within and around you. That's exactly what we were looking for because you were, I was asking everyone on the first episode of that, what do you think is spirituality? Good thing is everyone everyone said this is not religion. It's beyond religion. That was, that was an interesting thing. But this aspect, we needed these kind of things from you. This is exactly what we want. Uh, it's that life energy, but it's the flow of the life energy and the moment by moment experience of it, but not just within you, but around you as well with each other. So relationships have a profoundly religious, um, you know, set of, uh, uh, you know, kind of history, but they have an even deeper spiritual reality. Um, uh, there's a wonderful um, meditation teacher who I like, who says that, writes, talks about the monastery of relationship, um, which is about, um, the discovery of self through other. Um, and fundamentally, this is what we do in mediation. Um, uh, it's all about the relationship between self and other. All conflict is about the relationship between self and other. And that's deep and profound. Um, and um, in the moments when we get it, um, just unbelievably joyous. Um, we don't um, always get it and we don't often get it at that deep level, but in those moments, we catch a glimpse of something really miraculous. So um, that's what I mediate for. I mediate for that experience. I look for it. Um, it is, of course, highly addictive uh, for mediators um, because you want more of this when you've experienced it. The question then becomes, how do you do this? And here we have multiple ways in which we find that it is possible to do this, some of which come out of various spiritual traditions, um, uh, silence, uh, contemplation, uh, all of those methodologies are ones that work in a conflict resolution setting as well. Um, um, asking questions that draw people in a profound and poignant direction um, that allow them to reveal themselves to each other, uh, not at the superficial level, uh, not at the level of masks, 
um, uh, and protective defensive devices, uh, but at the deeper level of authentic self. So but that's what, what we're, yeah. What about this whole energy thing we talk about at the energy and the end? Well, that, yeah. A little bit on that, There's something on that. What are your experiences on the whole concept of energy in the mediation room or in between the people? Something on that. What What is your experience on that been? Well, I think we all know that there is a fundamentally different quality of energy um, that um, we experience in anger, then we experience in fear, then we experience in loss or grief um, or sadness. Um, and that quality of energy uh, is one that is communicated, um, not necessarily through words. Words can elicit um, energy, but um, it is much deeper than words. Uh, it's what um, uh, helps us figure out what the meaning of the words is. So you can say in an angry tone of voice, I like you, um, but we're gonna hear the tone of voice because it's gonna tell us what the actual meaning of the sentence is uh, and we'll disregard the words. So now what do we do as a mediator? The answer is, I think, uh, we become a tuning fork and we resonate with that energy uh, in order to figure out what is happening inside of them by experiencing that vibrational information inside of us and then turning it into a question, um, uh, an intervention, a movement, um, some way for people to access and communicate along the line of that energy. So uh, this of course is difficult because conflict itself is a, a kind of energy. Um, and uh, it has the quality of being both hostile and intimate at the same time. So on the one hand, it is antagonistic. And on the other hand, it is deeply, deeply intimate and cuts right through all of the various defenses. In fact, that is really one of the central purposes of conflict um, is to slap somebody across the face uh, and say, stop being so um, ridiculous. Uh, or superficial, show up here. I knew I, I want you to be present. How am I gonna get you to be present? Um, by hijacking your neurophysiology in the form of an insult or a, an attack. That's how I'm gonna get you to show up here. So doesn't this happen in, in, in relationships? Of course it does. Um, and because it happens in loving, caring relationships in couples and families, um, we know that it also happens much more broadly um, in people generally. So what do we do with um, this uh, quality of energy? Um, what we realize is that what makes the conflict is the fact that there are actually um, two energies uh, and not just one. 
there's the energy of conflict and there's the energy of resolution. Uh, there's the energy of hostility, competitiveness, um, um, uh, uh, the energy of, if you will, the zero sum game. Um, and there is the energy of uh, love uh, and connectedness and collaboration and the non-zero sum game. Um, and what we know from our life experience is that um, the energy of love and connection and collaboration is way more enjoyable, um, um, way more meaningful. Um, that's what we really want than the other kind. I tell, so, me, I tell you, Ken, yeah, sorry. No, I'll tell you what, the, the situation is that most people want to hear exactly what you're saying. And I'm not like too much on this aspect that I interrupt you, but I'm wanting to get here after the journey. Uh, we've gone through the 60s and everything that yeah. what got you here? I'm more right now. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. This is not going to end. We'll have keep having these series because I want to get you there when you reach this point okay. and you have those things. So that's a little bit of a problem. I get this. Some people do tell me why did you why do you interrupt Ken? But I'm just saying, I just want to go through the entire journey because for a person to get somewhere, he's gone through lots. So yeah. this is so I just want to. I, I mean, I hope you don't mind. I hope no, you don't no, mind. No, no, I don't that. mind at all. I don't I just, mind at all. I know I'm taking you back into the 60s again. And <laughs> sure, no, no, that's fine. So here is, let's go back to what I was saying before when I was talking about, um, you know, how history changes, uh, but it gives you an opportunity to figure out kind of the deeper movement of that history um, to see what was underneath it. So on the one hand, there was all of the stuff that we were trying to do to bring about uh, in that period. Uh, but underneath it were a series of deep um, uh, learnings, I guess we would say, uh, about what is possible um, when you um, uh, step outside of the conditions in which that you have been given. Uh, the conditions that have been identified as permanent. So I, um, I would say it's exactly the same in conflict as it was in that period of time. Um, there were the two energies. There was tremendous conflict. And a part of the value of being in all of these movements in the 60s was that I learned not to be frightened of conflict. Um, I learned its positive character. Um, uh, that nothing really changes um, without some willingness on the part of individual people to say, no, no, um, I need to stand here, even if you don't like the place that I am standing. Um, this is the truth. And it is not just the truth for me, it is the truth for all of us. And even you know uh, that that is the truth, uh, in spite of the fact that you oppose it. But I think one interesting that it came up. I mean, Lisa is here. Lisa was in the episode, I think, uh, before this, and she was giving her experience. She's younger than you, but she she was when in college. She was saying that during that the protest against the Vietnam War situation. So there were like uh, maybe a few people who had come out to protest, and suddenly the college got to know that the National Guard has been called, and everyone collected. 
so was this whole concept of getting together only this you know a way a show of strength against the national guard and this movement would not have happened in that case i don't know in her college maybe if the national guard was not called in i'm just thinking what was the scenario there did, why did people just get together in that kind of a situation and they were not getting together otherwise i shall give her her experience later we'll ask her about that but did this how did the movement actually happen well i think that you're there there's a, a really deep um uh, issue underneath what you're asking bikram um uh why is it that black lives matter happens now in the united states um and i think that the answer is that we are actually at a kind of crossroads in terms of our history uh and that crossroads can be expressed in many different ways but one of the ways that it gets expressed is in the form of conflict so here's a definition of conflict um it's a new paradigm that's trying to be born um and uh it is um another definition it is the sound made by the cracks in a system a family system a relational system a social system a political system an organizational system and um so what i learned from that period in time and what i kept with me was in the first place um uh, uh an ability to um uh kind of um see that what was what we were actually standing for was something um what we were working for was something uh that uh required us to um if you will to use contemporary terms transform the conflicts in which we found ourselves um but with that we had no idea really exactly how to do that we had very little knowledge about process and so what happened is things actually fell apart um uh, it was not only the national guard that showed up um i was at this point later in the 60s uh very active in the uh also in the anti-war movement or the peace movement um i was in charge of legal defense for all the national mobilizations against the war um in new york city at the pentagon in chicago in 1968 um and that was my professional job i was in charge of those um uh, of legal defense for people who are out demonstrating and i was one of those people who was supporting them but i was also representing gi's who were against the war in courts martial um working with um soldiers setting up uh uh anti-war coffee houses uh at military bases around the world um not just in the US but in the Philippines and Japan and various other places um so it was um uh there was all of that activity going on all of it involved in conflict uh and now the conflict was getting more and more serious um more and more dangerous um and what that provoked was a kind of um uh increasing sort of um uh how do i say this um uh sort of a a, a crossroads for people who are involved in um you know uh, trying to create social change about which direction do we actually move in 
Some people actually took the path of violence um, in response, which um, was the our own sort of homegrown um, uh, weather ground, weather underground, the Weatherman organization, which was a um, explicitly uh, terrorist organization in the U.S. on a very modest scale compared to other organizations. That was one path. Um, but there were increasing divisions um, as the uh, conflicts grew more and more serious. Um, and it wasn't just the National Guard, it was grand juries, it was a whole series of repressive methods um, that provoked uh, a kind of escalation uh, within the ranks. Uh, but we didn't know how to handle that escalation. And so what gradually happened is that um, the people who were involved in these various activities just became increasingly isolated. Um, it began to fall apart. So um, the, uh, uh, what I did at that moment was I uh, tried to figure out why. Uh, why was this happening? And I went back to school to get a doctorate in history, which part of which was uh, to study this, you know, what had happened um, and to think about it and reflect on it. Um, I also uh, became a law professor at that time. Um, and I was also a professor of history and um, sociology and politics and economics in various places. Uh, teaching in a, at a college level, mostly to undergraduates. Um, and using that teaching as an opportunity for reflection myself, um, pulling back from um, uh, direct activity and now trying to figure out what exactly had happened. But then again, one thing that I just want to check with you, Lucas, you had mentioned last time about that gun being put on your head and when you were down south. I'm just thinking that at that point, like you said, on one end, this, there was violence also, and you had taken the path of nonviolence in that. But what, how did you, I mean, at that point of time, did you have any idea of your thoughts there? Did you, were you thinking of changing your thoughts on this and whether violence, <laughs> I'm just asking seriously. <laughs> did yeah, you... yeah. Um, well, it was if it was just me, um, it would have been different, but it wasn't. I, it was, um, uh, the, it, the, the thing that really upset me the most was being in the presence of small children who are being treated inhumanely. Uh, that was got what really got me. Um, and as a result of uh, those experiences, which were highly traumatic in which, you know, guns are being pointed at people and people were being brutalized, uh, treated really brutally, dogs being sicked on, on children, um, uh, tear gassed, you know, uh, clubbed, uh, you know, all of this stuff, part of which uh, um, I witnessed and was a part of myself in terms of being treated in these ways. Um, with yourself, you can sort of um, kind of, uh, you treat it a little bit differently. Um, having been trained in nonviolence and being a nonviolence trainer, um, because I was, I was teaching nonviolence in 
<clears throat> to people who are parts of these movements, um, uh, there are multiple ways in which you have um, of responding yourself when you're in danger that are much easier, uh, or at least they were easier for me, uh, than to be witness to this brutalization of others, um, particularly children. Um, so what happened then was I started having fantasies, uh, dreams, nightmares, really, um, of revenge. Uh, exactly. And that happened for really over a year. I would have um, dreams in which I would become violent against the people who had done these things because there was this sense of powerlessness uh, in the face of this violence. Um, and what it reflected was the fact that this was really beyond anything that I had learned. Um, there's a wonderful um, comment from Martin Luther King Jr. who said that um, there are two great powers in the world. Um, one is the power to inflict suffering and the other is the power to suffer. This is a third problem. It isn't the infliction of suffering and it isn't suffering yourself because that uh, actually there is immense power in that in being willing to suffer. And you can see it, those who've seen the movie Gandhi can see people stand, standing in line, stepping up being prepared to be beaten uh, by the police. That was what it was like. Um, but we were in that together and there was strength and courage that came from all of us doing this together. But to watch other people being treated this way and feeling completely powerless to do anything about it, that was harder. Yeah, but I'm just thinking that every point of time, are you at those crossroads when it can go in any direction? Yes. Can, so I, I mean, to be able to handle it at every moment, how do you do that? I mean, it must be tough. It must be a tough kind of a situation. Um, it was one that, let me, I'll say it a little differently. Um, we use the word movement about this period in time. We talk about the civil rights movement or the anti-war movement or the peace movement. Um, but truthfully, this is the word movement conveys something that isn't really captured in the word. Um, uh, it is what it actually represents is a kind of togetherness, a spiritual togetherness that was absolutely true for those of us who are a part of it. And if you talk to people who are a part of that uh, movement at that time and you ask them what their experience is like, um, uh, you'll get a quality of caring um, about what we were doing and about one another. Uh, I was close friends, for example, with someone uh, for many, many years uh, who most of you have heard of. His name is Tom Hayden. Um, he was a very, a, a very prominent activist. Um, and I knew him for many, many years. Uh, he died a couple of years ago, and here at my house, we had a memorial for him. And from around the country, 
Um, dozens of people came who had been friends, close friends during that period. Uh, he had been the head of a group called SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and people who had been leaders in that organization all came together. And this is um, 50 years, 60 years uh, after we had all been together, uh, we still loved each other. There was still that connection, that, that profound sense that everybody here had, you know, that we had been through this experience together um, with the police, with the National Guard, with uh, the Ku Klux Klan, with whatever, you know, that happened to have been. But most importantly, um, we had um, sort of stopped uh, a inhumane process from moving forward um, uh, through our activity. And you had to recognize that that took some courage. Um, and there was love that came out of that experience. So this is a little bit, you know, sort of hard to understand, but um, that love was absolutely there. So now what do you do with that once things start to fall apart? Well, you're looking for some other way to make it happen. But uh, history is no longer moving in your direction. It's moving in some different direction. So then what uh, didn't really occur to me until later, but came back to me through the uh, experience of conflict resolution, was that all of the values that I had uh, supported um, and worked on during that period of time are actually uh, a part of a natural part of this process of conflict resolution. Um, uh, values that we may describe, for example, as power balancing uh, or active listening um, or uh, consensus building. Uh, all of these are things that are, uh, that represent um, the, to go back to the word that you used at the very beginning, Vikram, uh, a kind of vision of what the world could be like. Um, and that's why I asked the question about experiencing something magical in the mediation process. Uh, that magic is actually a little crack in the world that as it exists um, that reveals beneath the surface the possibility of some world that could exist um, but doesn't as yet. But the same vision come to you in terms of what you call the conflict revolution which of course I've changed to dispute resolution revolution, but those th th same vision comes to you right now as to the conflict revolution, as to the picture that you have. So I wrote, I wrote a book called Conflict Revolution and I liked uh, taking resolution on the top and spray painting a V over the S. Um, and the, the basic idea is um, that we have created a culture of conflict um, that is predominantly power-based and rights-based. And if we are actually going to shift to an interest-based form of conflict resolution, not only for um, 
relational disputes, uh, as in divorces or in litigation or in commercial disputes, but across the board. The question is, what would that look like if we were to redesign the way that we handle conflict uh, politically, economically, socially, in our society, environmentally, as an illustration? What exactly would that look like? Um, and I think we can see that um, there is a reason for this. And the reason is um, that our conflicts on a global scale are becoming quite costly. Um, the pandemic is a clear example of trying to solve a complex problem um, that requires collaboration and global um, uh, networks of support and um, uh, helping one another um, using power-based uh, methods and uh, class-based methods, meaning you know, those who are wealthy get the vaccines. Um, uh, those uh, who have the power get the vaccines, uh, but those without power, those without wealth are the last to receive the vaccines. But not here, Ken, not in India, not in India. Everyone gets it free. <laughs> very good. That's, what, that's uh, the, the, what the reason I say very good is because we know that um, the vaccine mutates um, and where do we think this mutation is going to come from that is going to make all the vaccines useless? And it's going to come from the people who uh, we decide not to vaccinate. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's wonderful that, that in India, uh, everyone receives it and they receive mm -hmm. it free. Yeah, that you can. Yeah. Let me also clarify that you can pay, you can go and pay $4 and go, take it separately. If you want to go to a private place, the government gives it free. Aha. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. so okay, good. <laughs> so that now let's uh, pass on from that one to global warming. No, no, no. You want to go there? I thought we'll go back to your being a professor. We were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this has yeah. to happen. This will come to this, but th that part of it of life also is interesting to know. Yeah. So um, uh, a large part of my life um, growing up was uh, reading um, and studying. Um, and I say studying not in the sense of uh, in school, but just reading about things that are interesting to you. So this is one part of my library here um, that you see behind me. Um, and I use it. Uh, it's an active uh, library. I, I periodically go and pull things out. Right now I'm reading uh, five books on uh, propaganda trying to understand the nature of propaganda, for example. And I like having this possibility here. So this is really what I did during the period when I was an academic, uh, when I was a law professor and a history professor, et cetera. But interesting, uh, in terms of the phases of your life, do you, would you remember what you were reading at that? I mean, is your path also created by what kind of literature that you got in front of you or books you got in front of you if you sure. did not get those books would you not have gone in that direction do you think ever have you looked at that aspect yes so um during the 1960s i read books on politics on economics on sociology um later uh i began reading books on psychology um 
uh, on anthropology, uh, on philosophy, um, and particularly uh, books about a kind of critical approach to the law. In, because I had, of course, gone to law school and then I went to law school uh, a second time to get an LLM degree. Um, and in the course of that, what I was trying to figure out is um, uh, where does justice come from? What is it? How do we define it? Uh, and I wrote uh, a, a book on justice, which I never published, um, but I kind of summarized part of it in a book that I wrote recently uh, uh, called The Dance of Opposites, uh, which is about law and mediation and justice. Um, so uh, I was trying to come to terms with issues like that uh, to see where it was that the law wasn't performing the way that it ought to. Uh, this is before I knew anything about mediation. Uh, I became an administrative law judge um, uh, for the Agricultural Labor Relations Board in California and then for the Public Employment Relations Board. Uh, I became an arbitrator in 1977. Uh, began arbitrating labor management disputes. Um, I uh, became a judge pro tem on the Superior Court in Los Angeles in order to try to figure this out. Um, and a part of the shift for me into um, mediation took place really in 1979-1980 when I finished uh, my PhD and I finished the LLM degree, and um, several things happened. One was that my marriage fell apart and I had the experience of going through a very painful divorce. Um, a second was that I was here, I was a judge and I knew that I was supposed to do justice, but I didn't know what that was. Um, and I had a hard time trying to figure out how do I actually make this system just for people. Um, the third thing that happened was that I was hired uh, to be the first judge on people's court. Mm -hmm. So you have heard about Judge Wapner. Uh, this could have been Judge Cloak. Um, and they hired me to do this. And um, we, we did a pilot. Uh, and in the pilot, there were two people who were there. There was a woman who wanted her photograph taken and a photographer who took it. And she refused to pay him because the photograph was terrible. And so I came in and I just said, well, you know, what do you want? And I'd like the photo. And are you willing to take her photo? Yes. Um, you know, well, if he's willing to take your photo, would you pay him? Well, yeah, but he produced a photo that's terrible. Um, why was it terrible? Well, she didn't look good. The camera doesn't lie. I tried to help her look good, but she wouldn't accept my advice. Would you be willing to accept his advice? Sure. And now they're off and running. So we, I, in other words, I mediated it and they fired me um, because they needed to have somebody lose in order to interview the person afterwards. Um, but what it was really a revelation to me uh, to see that um, there was a conversation that was actually much, much better for them. Uh, this was really my first experience mediating. And then the second thing that, the last thing that happened was that I was assigned the task of settling cases um, in my, as a, as a judge. So I became a settlement judge and I loved it. 
Um, and then I read a short little article about the setting up of the very first mediation program in Los Angeles. And I went to a, a, um, a short little presentation on it. And in five minutes, I knew my life had completely changed. So uh, less than five minutes. So uh, I began mediating. And this, of course, for me was a um, really uh, coming together and an integration of all of the things that I have done in my life. Uh, it brought together um, the caring for people part of it, uh, the peacemaking part of it, um, the part that had gone through um, and experienced conflicts directly, but didn't know exactly where to go with them. Uh, the part that sort of was committed to justice on some level, but didn't know what it was. All of a sudden, there was a present, a set of answers that hadn't existed for me before. And that's how I became a mediator. But what was at that point of time, what was the situation in society? What was happening there? I mean, all this movement that you were part of now, what did it reach? What point did it reach in the society as such? I would say that most of them had receded pretty much into a kind of um, uh, uh, what we called uh, think globally, act locally uh, type of activity. I would say of the, of the people who I, and I'm still, I should say, in touch with on the internet, um, about 80 of the principal leaders of that, of the, from the period of the 1960s, we email each other all the time. There's emails this morning from them. Mm -hmm. um, and every one of them has continued to be active in some ways. Um, there's a friend of mine whose name is Heather Booth, who is the head of something called the Midwest Academy, which is an organizing academy that helped train people uh, in, uh, as community organizers, um, et cetera. I can kind of go down the list and show that every single person has mm -hmm. been trying in sometimes very small and not very spectacular or public publicized ways um, to make the world just a little bit of a better place to live in. I'm also looking at the fact that obviously we're talking about 40 years back that you got into mediation, but in terms of the whole adversarial atmosphere around you, was that kind? Was that what the world was like around you, the people, the whole atmosphere? Uh, yes, I would say that there was a lot of, um, uh, how do I say this? Uh, this is the beginning of the, of the Reagan uh, era, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, there was a lot of still leftover Cold War um, uh, hostility on a global level. Um, and domestically, um, there was um a uh, not a hot, not a lot of interest or a high level of tolerance for dissent um the uh, civil rights movement itself had been pushed back this is a period in which a lot of the gains that we had made earlier were now being, um uh, undermined in various ways um but the important part, I think, for our understanding is that whenever um, there, wherever there is discrimination, um, there is conflict. 
because somebody wants to be treated better. And that's just eternal. And so we're going to have chronic conflicts until we treat people better. But, but, um, but, the, but you had seen change. But you had seen change happening. I mean, you've seen change oh, yes. over these years. Things had changed. Oh, yes. So there was some satisfaction. Well, it there. Was, uh, yeah. Uh, the way we described it was uh, we help people have the right to order a hamburger, but they couldn't afford to buy one. <laughs> that was how we described it at the time. Uh, um, because we hadn't completed um, uh, the effort. Martin Luther King Jr. at the end of his life really focused very strongly and powerfully on the issue of economic um, discrimination. Uh, not, uh, not just racial discrimination, but um, uh, poverty uh, in various communities and how we treat people who are poor. And we still have this issue today. We still treat uh, people who are homeless, um, living on the street, um, uh, very poor. Um, we don't recognize uh, their humanity. Um, and that makes it very difficult to live, you know, kind of uh, uh, in that kind of environment. But that's not something that can be solved individually. It has to be a social solution. But how do you react to that aspect that you see a homeless person sitting there and you obviously are going about your life? But how do you re react to that? How, what does it do to you? Well, the first thing I think that we need to do is we have to um, uh, really solve the problem once again of self and other, which is the ability to um, be empathetic with whoever it is that you meet and to not get lost in that empathy. It's a two-step. So the first step is to find the other within the self. Uh, and that part actually is we're born with the ability to do that. Um, but we can train ourselves to be able to do it better. Uh, we can find the places where that becomes scary. But one of the places where it becomes scary is that it is possible to do it to such an extent that you lose the sense of, 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 um, uh, of self um, uh, that is not the other. In other words, um, the capacity not only to vibrate in sync with that other person and simultaneously to have your own vibration that you do not lose track of. And this is what we do in mediation. The, they don't want the mediator to forget themselves completely and just become a part of the conflict. Because if you do that, you've lost, you've lost perspective. And they want that perspective. They want someone outside the conflict to reflect back on what it looks like from the outside. And at the same time, they want someone who's inside it who understands what it feels like to be there. So where is the mediator? Simultaneously in the conflict and outside of it, both at the same time. Yeah. But, but, but let me know. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, please, please, no, it's okay. No, no, please continue. continue. Yeah. yeah, so uh, this is all uh, stuff that I 
didn't wasn't really very aware of at the very beginning. I just was uh, experiencing it, uh, trying to figure it out, um, and then uh, trying to write about it. Mm -hmm. And so I've written now 15 books on but, conflict resolution. But Kendra, that started, I see the first book that you published was in 1997. So before uh, that? Yeah, possibly. So what was happening before that? I mean, so you basically 1980, you get into mediation mm -hmm. and... Well, the very first thing that happened is I began just, uh, well, I was trained by the Neighborhood Justice Center in Los Angeles uh, and did lots and lots of neighborhood community disputes, uh, juvenile victim offender mediations, uh, um, you know, all, just all kind everything that was there. Uh, I was one of the first three mediators in Los Angeles, uh, practicing mediators. Uh, but at that time, for, to talk about three mediators in Los Angeles, um, whereas today there's thousands. Um, you can see how that process has really developed and moved. Um, and so what happened, I began going to uh, meetings of mediators, trying to draw them together in various ways. I began writing about short little articles about what I was experiencing, um, uh, just trying to reflect on what was happening. Some of them came out as case studies. Some of them came out as um, actual reflections, but most I think in the beginning were case studies. And I published those a little bit later in a book uh, that was called um, Resolving, uh, uh, what is it, Personal and Organizational Conflicts, Resolving. Stories of Transformation. Okay, okay. okay. what I saw was, yeah, okay, that was in 2000, that was in, in 2000, that came out. Yeah, that time. came out, and what happened is I, I wrote an original book that then got divided in three parts. Um, uh, the, the first book was um, Mediation, Revenge, and the Magic of Forgiveness. And that was just a collection of articles uh, in search of a book. And then I tried to pull those together and then realized that they were three books in one. Um, and then Josie Bass published all three of them, Resolving Conflicts at Work, uh, Resolving Personal and Organizational Conflicts, and Mediating Dangerously. And then the Thank God It's Monday, that was a separate was one. Really yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Thank God it's Monday. There was a book called Thank God it's Monday. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was about um, uh, 14 values we need to humanize the way we work. So I did a lot of, because of the fact that I'd been an arbitrator and an administrative law judge involving workplaces and had lots of work experience myself uh, and began doing or sort of workplace and organizational consulting. Um, particularly from a conflict resolution point of view. Um, so what uh, I tried to write about is um, how to design, this is before conflict resolution systems design, but I'd use this word today, how to design workplaces um, that you want to show up to, that you, that you want to go, make you want to go to work. Mm -hmm. uh, so what would, what would it take to make you say, thank God it's Monday, instead of thank God it's Friday. Um, and then um, the answer I think is about 14 values that we came up with 
uh, including values of diversity and um, gender and racial diversity at work, uh, you know, et cetera, a whole series of different ones, one of which was conflict resolution. But, but tell me, is there something that you've got which is basically how the whole concept of mediation gets into society and they start using it? Do we have some step-by-step -step situation somewhere? Have you read, read, written somewhere there? Because a place like India where things are just about happening, I think we need something like that. That's too. And the, I mean, also the, at the same time, also telling us that this is where things went wrong. This is how it should have happened and something like that. Is there something available? Uh, yes. Um, yes and no, let me say. So the first thing to see is that um, just as uh, a me when mediating, we need to approach each individual person as unique. Um, and instead of coming in with answers, we come in with questions. And we try to uh, elicit from within those people some understanding within themselves of what needs to be done, uh, which was latent inside of them until the mediator came along and asked a question which elicited that response and allowed it to take shape, um, to become, uh, to be expressed in language. So, um, we have some understanding now about multiple um, entry points, um, how it is possible to enter a conflict in multiple ways uh, and elicit the same understanding. Uh, and it's exactly the same thing in working with organizations. So the very first step in the process is to come in and ask questions. Um, and to ask them pretty much, um, let's see, how do I say this? Um, uh, what we are looking for in asking those questions is not the superficial answers. Um, it is the answers that people know that are hidden beneath those other answers. Um, the, what is the, uh, it's kind of like the questions you're asking Vikram, what, what is the truth for you? How do we move this process forward? But here what happens is um, uh, that out of experience in working with people in workplaces and organizations comes a recognition of certain places where there, is, where there are openings. The openings are largely hidden um, but they are there. And if you can find those places where there are hidden openings and explore them, uh, you are able to draw the conversation in a new direction. For example, here is a hidden place of openness in families, um, which is the desire to be treated um, the way that you want to be treated in that family. So here my question, my opening question in family mediations. What words would you use to describe the kind of family you most want to have? What words would you use? So somebody says, well, I want a family that is uh, caring. 
that one feels uncared for. I want a family that's respectful, that one feels disrespected. I want a family that's honest, that one feels lied to. And now we've gotten information, but this is a place of vulnerability within family conflicts. It's what people really, really want. And we can do the same thing in organizations by asking questions about vision or questions about culture uh, or questions about um, uh, just, uh, you know, what happens in conflict. If we just take, well, let's take the issue of culture, for example. Uh, here's a, a culturally informed question. Uh, what is the um, uh, attitude of people in this organization towards conflict? How do people handle it? What do they do? Or a version of that, uh, a different version of that might be, um, take a flip chart paper, draw a line down the center, on the left side, write old culture, and on the right side, write new culture. Now, write the old culture of conflict, and now on the other side, write what you would like the culture of conflict to be in the future, right? It's a very simple exercise, but when people do it, they gain tremendous insight into what is actually happening. How many of those are there? I think there are an infinite number, and we've discovered maybe a few hundred. Uh, I did lots and lots of work. Um, I teamed up with groups of other uh, mediators and organizational consultants, and I did a lot of work in, uh, in organizations. Very, very large Fortune 50 organizations, Fortune 100 organizations, um, and team building, strategic planning, um, organizational design, um, lots and lots of work like that that really informed the book that I wrote, Resolving Conflicts at Work. And then it also informed a lot of the work that I've done on, on conflict resolution systems design. Uh, by this time I was beginning, it was my practice had really become uh, self-sufficient, shall I say. It took me a couple of years to become self-sufficient um, and to make it through that period of time. I think we but this tend is to what underestimate how long it takes well, what year was this now? By, by, by what time had you become self-sufficient? Uh, I'd say by 1983. 1983. Okay. That's not bad. No. But, but, I, but you've obviously... Uh, so I started... Yeah. No, it's okay. Because I was just thinking that we've spoken about the books which are in 1997, 2000. But between this period, all those thoughts that you had and everything, were they... I mean, are they available somewhere? Or you just put that into one book later? Oh, uh, well, I can, uh, they, they're in all the various books. I try to, uh, you know, in different forms. Uh, thoughts about which? No, I'm just, I'm just thinking uh, that, yeah. because I'm just thinking that in 1983, supposing in 1983, you have a certain thought. Now, obviously, things keep evolving as you go along. So then you put something down much later. So I'm just thinking that a thought in 1983 and how it evolved into a thought which you put in a book in 2000. I want to see that evolution because people should know that these things evolve. It's not that there was one thought and yeah. that continued. I want to. I want people to know that also. Yeah, and they continue to evolve. Yeah. Uh, I gave a uh, a talk yesterday about my you know favorite topic these days, which is about how mediators 
didn't make a difference in political conflicts. Um, and in the morning, I you know, revised several of the slides completely, exactly. uh, developed some new PowerPoint slides that I hadn't ever written before. I'm writing an article right now about um, prejudice, um, uh, bias, stereotyping, prejudice, and discrimination. Uh, and it's called Race and Caste, uh, Gender and Patriarchy, uh, Wealth and Class. Uh, and it's about trying to understand the deeper levels of prejudice, um, uh, not just the behaviors that people engage in, and not just even the systems and structures that underlie those behaviors, but the source of those systems and structures, uh, the algorithm, uh, the fundamental rules that define, um, uh, you know, and, and produce uh, uh, prejudice and bias. Where do those come from? And how do those connect with conflict resolution? And how can we bring conflict resolution skills to play in reducing bias and prejudice at its deepest levels? And the assumption, the basic assumption is um, uh, we all stereotype our opponents. We all form biases of, about our opponents in our conflicts. Bias is essentially a conflict shorthand it's a shortcut, uh, what's called a heuristic, um, meaning uh, with a, a kind of uh, tremendous economy uh, in time and energy, uh, you can come up with a response that doesn't take a lot of time and it's gonna protect you. Uh, the problem is it can also get in your way. So that's what it's really about. So I'm continuing to evolve and write, uh, even <laughs> as we sit here. No, one thing uh, I would be really be interested to know is that you write a book. I mean, there's a book published in 1997. Now, if you pick it up today, would you really change it? There would be different thoughts which would have come. And would it be a different book now? Uh, I would say even for what I wrote yesterday, uh, it's going to be a little bit different today. Oh, I'll tell you why, why I'm um, where I'm coming from is so that no, because well, I, there's, there's, yeah. yeah, let's see. Uh, let me see if I can actually find this. Um, there's a wonderful statement. I don't know if any of you are familiar. Uh, let's see. Uh, where is she? Uh, Um, oh dear, I know that it's here somewhere. Hold on one second. Uh, Elena Ferranti, uh, who wrote the Neapolitan Quartet. If, any, if you haven't read Elena Ferranti, she's absolutely brilliant. Um, here what, here's what, um, she says, um, if I can just read this passage to you, I just copied this down. Uh, in my experience, the difficulty slash pleasure of writing touches every point of the body. When you finished a book, it's as if your innermost self had been ransacked and all you wanna do is regain distance, return to being whole. I've discovered by publishing that there is a certain relief 
in the fact that the moment the text becomes a printed book, it goes elsewhere. Before, it was the text that was pestering me. Now I'd have to run after it. I entered it, but I can no longer enter it. Nor, on the other hand, can the book enter me. So what's left to, is to protect myself from its effects, and that is what I try to do. I wrote the book to free myself from it, not to be its prisoner. Brilliant. <laughs> yep. No, because well, I'll tell you where I'm coming from is because I don't read books. And it's a joke that I about this, that I don't read books. <laughs> but I keep telling people exactly this, that an author wrote a book in a certain year. You pick that book up. The author would have changed their mind on that. But now you don't know what the present state of mind of that author on that issue is. Why don't you just talk to the author instead <laughs> today rather than pick up a book which is sure. 20 years old? <laughs> so uh, that is why I was asking you about the evolution of your thoughts on that, on a particular book also. It'll be interesting to know that on each of those. Why would say each of those books, <laughs> each of your books? I would want that. Uh, I think there is something in the written word um, that happens when you're writing it, uh, which is uh, there is a possibility of greater precision. So every single word uh, that I've written is a struggle. Uh, to try to find what it is that actually is true for me. Doesn't mean it's true for anyone else, but it's a, it's a struggle to find the thing that is true. Um, to describe it as precisely as you can, knowing in advance that you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. uh, because nothing, uh, no words can ever describe what is deeper and more profound than any word. So, and that is, of course, the quality of our lives. Um, yeah. but, but I'm just, I would really want to, I mean, pick up one of these ones that obviously a lot of people must be re referring to them. But I mean, one of them, please pick up one of those books. Just tell us where you would have now, if you had written it today, where would it have changed? What would have changed? Something on that? Mediating dangerously, say? Uh, Mediating dangerously? If you look at that. Are there different thoughts now? Um, I think that there are two things that are important. One is to uh, allow what you wrote to be an expression of the moment that you wrote it. Um, uh, and to capture what it was that was true in that in that moment. Um, and if you have been uh, good at what you have done, um, you will create something that hopefully will last, um, that will transcend different periods in time, uh, that will have that kind of enduring quality to it. And all the great literature has that as a part of it. Um, you can go back today and read um, the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, or uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, I just reread a new translation of the Odyssey um, just a short while ago. Uh, and uh, it's absolutely stunning how incredibly brilliant it is um, and how incredibly current. And I do read a great deal of, of Greek literature just because of the fact that it's so 
um, so powerful in that way. I read lots of, of plays. Uh, I read for the fifth or sixth time the the Oresteian trilogy, um, um, where Agamemnon returns from the Trojan War and is killed by his wife Clytemnestra, and then Orestes kills Clytemnestra, and then Orestes is pursued by the Furies. Uh, it's just such an incredibly powerful piece. Um, uh, and so there is something to be said for letting those things be the way that they are, and then allowing other people to come along and say, here's a totally different take on it, or even for you yourself at some later point to do that. I would say that um, there is um, uh, a specific language um, that becomes more nuanced um, with increased experience so that you are able to fine tune um, the particular words that you use to describe something. But the overall um, kind of orientation of the work is not something that I would change in any of the things that I've written. Uh, and this goes back uh, quite some time. The tone, I would say, uh, can be more nuanced, um, more subtle, um, uh, more uh, actually paradoxical. I hope this helps. Yeah. No, perfect. But the, 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 now we have got in 83, now we basically your mediation practice is quite, I mean, you're doing all right there, self-sufficient oh, yeah. kind of thing. But what else are you, are, are you involved in something else? Is there some other social or any other political, anything there? Involvement? Uh, well, I am right now uh, putting a lot of time into um, working with a number of organizations, trying to um, uh, improve the process for conversation and negotiation, for meetings and negotiations that's going to take place uh, in Glasgow in November of this year when the United Nations puts on its climate change conference. Uh, I think the major issue that we are facing as a planet, um, compared, which is vastly more serious uh, than the pandemic, uh, is the issue of climate change. And the process that we're using to talk about it um, is backwards uh, and counterproductive. And um, I just wrote, and it'll be on mediate.com, I think tomorrow uh, or sometime next week, uh, I wrote a little short little thing, which is 20 ways uh, to improve United Nations climate change meetings and, and negotiations just 20 different ideas from conflict resolution. So this is a big part of what I'm trying to do is to encourage that development. Um, a second piece that I'm working on is uh, trying to actually indirectly reach the uh, Biden administration around trying to introduce conflict resolution um, skills into ordinary political processes. Um, and that's why I wrote the last book, uh, which is, thank you, John, thank you. Uh, we need this desperately. Um, uh, the last book I wrote is called Politics, Dialogue, and the Evolution of Democracy. And what it basically says is that um, in order to solve complex problems, 
we require uh, higher order solutions, higher order skills than the ones we had before. If you're in a power-based uh, political system, you just know, need to know how to know what the, the dictator says uh, and keep your mouth shut. Um, uh, and that's the only skill you need. In a procedural democracy or a legal democracy, or if you will, a rights-based democracy, you need higher order skills in understanding what um, the issues are. But uh, to go to an interest-based uh, democratic system, a, what I call a substantive democracy, um, even a participatory democracy, to go back to that language, um, what is required is exponentially higher orders of skills, which are precisely the skills that we are practicing. But then again, skills now it's saying in terms of climate, climate change, yeah, basically discussing the whole climate change thing. But how, I mean, how, how long back have you been discussing it, and what? in terms of the thought process of people that you're discussing with, what, how are they looking at it? Because one is you're putting it across and how does it come across to them and what have you seen to, from them? Well, I, I've written it because I was uh, present at the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference. I brought a group of 100 mediators. Uh, I was the president of Mediators Beyond Borders uh, and I brought 100 mediators from around the world to Copenhagen. Uh, to simply come and observe and as non-governmental observers try to facilitate some of the conversations that took place. And that was where I realized this is not working. Ordinary forms of diplomacy can't solve the problem. So uh, there is a widespread recognition of this among people who are within those circles because they've been through it many times. Um, but nobody has really put it together in the form of a set of proposals for exactly, practically what to do about it. Um, unfortunately, I have a minute 10, so I will have to sign off in a couple of minutes. So I think we, maybe we could just talk to some people, but are we now, we're on for the, uh, for the fifth, whatever. That's Saturday before your birthday, we're on for that, for sure. Uh, yeah, I will take a look at that. That's Saturday the 15th. But, yeah, but Anne has something nice things to say. Anne, why don't you just tell us some nice things that you put in the message? Oh, I missed the Anne. chat box. I'm sorry. She, yes, you had something nice to say. Yes, Anne. I don't <laughs> listen to her. Basically. So I was just saying thank you very much, Vikram, for organizing this. And thank you, Ken, for the most entertaining and enjoyable, illuminating, enlightening um, session. I've heard you speak before, and it's, I learn something new every time. You're an amazing teacher, and I'm hoping that you know this. You'll keep on teaching because the the world needs to learn. There's so much we need to learn. Um, so thank you very much. Because can, can I have these a few people who I have only to say the nice things? I need some nice things also for people to say. <laughs> so please, anyone else some nice things to say? Please raise your virtual hand and let's please say something. Otherwise, Ken is leaving in a few minutes. Anyone has anything? Look, look at that, Ken. No one has anything to say. Kathleen also has nothing to say. I mean, normally she has so much to say, but Indrani has something. First, Kathleen first, Indrani is going first. In one sec. She's put, she's put her virtual hand up. Yeah, Indrani. Look, Kathleen later. First, first Indrani. Um, thank you. No, Ken, I just wanted to echo Anne's sentiments. Uh, you've been 
an icon and what an inspiration, particularly that you're so actively engaged, you know, in, in um, these times uh, that we are, that we find ourselves in. So yeah, absolute inspiration, loved mediating dangerously. It, it's, it's a book I use all the time. So uh, I look forward to exploring more of your works. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Ernie. But Ken, for a person like me who doesn't read books, is there some way that you can have some sessions where you can tell me what your books say? Would it be nice sure. to do that? <laughs> well, I think we just had, we just had one. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm sure. This is the only way I'm going to learn what you're saying. <laughs> but, but, but Rosalia has, got to say, has something. She's in Canada. She works for the Canadian government. But uh, yeah, Rosalia. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, Ken, thank you for a wonderful talk. Uh, I think you're a wonderful speaker. I just had one quick question. Uh, just, you just mentioned that um, about the, the climate change conference um, that you'd be uh, you're going to be involved in. Um, I find it interesting that you said that uh, there's uh, nobody has really um, uh, written anything about you know like what type of procedure you know the type of procedure that can be, uh, you know, any anything that's been put into paper, like uh, on what can be done, you know, like what, uh, uh, you know, to, to move things forward, because obviously mediation doesn't really work because we're looking at diplomacy, we're looking at geopolitics and uh, multilateralism. Um, do you have anything planned like with mediators without borders are you still involved actually with uh, mediators without borders uh, as the founding uh, as as the founder uh well i i am still involved uh, is it, they changed the name to mediators beyond borders uh oh, sorry. international so i am involved with them but uh, mostly i'm trying to work across uh lines with groups of mediators in scotland and i just wrote to the man who is uh, going to be coordinating those talks uh, in Glasgow in November um, to pull together uh, resources from within the United Nations. There is a um, Assistant Secretary General for Ombuds and Mediation Services. Mm -hmm. There is a Mediation Support Unit in the United Nations. And That's these right. are places where there is some level of expertise uh, that's in inside the UN that should be marshaled and brought to uh, full uh, bear on what is taking place uh, in this most important conversation um, mm -hmm. that is going to be happening in the fall. So okay. th thank you very much. I will I will try to uh, continue making as, this happen as much as I can. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. And thank I, you. Very, I appreciate. Yeah. I, th I thought I, I thought Lisa would say just hi to you about the fact that I was telling her about that movement. She was part of that. Okay, and then I, I really do need to know. Lisa, I just quickly you. want to say hi to Ken, and he's leaving then. Hi, Ken. Yes, I'm. I'm on your. I mean that MVVI's uh, climate change committee on the also the art subcommittee. So we put a proposal in for Glasgow. Um, I did want to ask you though because I'm very interested in natural ways of conflict resolution um, and like like indigenous methods what is natural just like Vikram also called thinks about you know if we start down what is procedural 
but what is coming up, what has come up from the ages that are age old methods and how can we connect to those? Um, I don't know if you've put any thought in, into that. Yes, uh, I did um, a series of trainings for Maori mediators in New Zealand uh, and they have developed a number of very um, beautiful ways of doing this. Um, there's a brilliant piece of the Bayemba um, community. Uh, William Urey, which most people don't know, was previously an anthropologist before writing Getting to Yes with Roger Fisher. Um, and he did a lot of work in the Kalahari, uh, where also mm -hmm. there's, uh, there are some very interesting things that have been done. Forest pygmies have done uh, you know, really interesting uh, yeah, Turnbull did a lot of work with uh, interesting techniques. Um, there's a yeah. lot. Yes. Yeah, and I would say restorative justice is a one label that we can put on some of those. Mm -hmm. I mean, I lived in be, Indonesia for uh, nine years, so a lot of that is from my own uh, intercultural experiences. And I'm an intercultural trainer, so. So, so Ken, now what, what is the situation? You really have to, can you really have to leave or you have one minute? I, I have to, yes, people because, are waiting for because, Okay, for me, for me, Ken will not be able to take your question right now. If you, she, she had her hand up there, but you really have to leave, do you? Uh, yeah, you have a, you have, Okay, okay. Because if you had a minute, she had something to say, but you want to take it? No, John, go. For me, for me had something she was saying. Go ahead, John. Uh, okay. For me. Yeah, for me. yeah, yeah. Good evening, good evening all, and thanks to uh, Ken. It's been very, I mean, thanks for sharing your thoughts and your perspective, and I've enjoyed the sessions, and I've actually learned new things, especially. Yeah, yes, yes. You have something more to say? Thank you, because Ken has to leave now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you just, I just want to mention the fact that when you mentioned about energy, energy, I mean that the conflict itself is an energy. The energy of resolution and the energy of a, a in connection. I mean, uh, connection, love, and connection. So those are very, very nice things for me that I picked. Thanks very much. Yes, that's Thank that's you. because it's because Ken is actually John wanted to say something. You wanted to say, talk to John Ken. John, oh. go go UCLA. <laughs> How does that is what we picked up from this today? Isn't it? <laughs> that's uh, that's tonight. We're playing. So for uh, trying to make it to the national championship. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. You've got it. Okay. So Ken, 15th, 15th May. Thank you. Sure. 15th, bye, I'll, bye. Send you, I'll send you an email, but 15th May is ours. Okay. Yep. All right. Thank you very much. You can, everyone else can stay. We're not throwing anyone else out. Thanks, Vikram. I got to run. Take care. Okay. Okay. See you. Thank you very much. Yep. Bye. If anyone else wants to now, everything is open. Now your floor, floor is open. Sorry, Vikram. I've got to go. All the best. Yep. Okay. See you. Bye, everyone. Uh, thank you, Vikram. I just want.